There's an interesting story as the nation of Israel is coming across the wilderness that women and children were with them. They went, they followed at the speed of the cloud or the pillar of fire by night. That's the speed that they went, however far it went or whatever. Guess what? This is cool. God always went the speed of the women and the children. They were never just dragging on like, we can't catch up, we're not gonna make it. God always went at the speed of the weakest person to keep up. And so too, we adopt that mentality. We adopt the fact that freedom, although important and a blessing, always has to take a back seat to you and I walking with Jesus more closely. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Great to see you guys today. Hey, we're uh, going to pick up our study in the book of First Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, turn to First Corinthians chapter 8. Yeah, exciting. We made it through chapter 7, and tonight we're going to be in chapter 8. Um, I don't know if you guys know, and uh, we, we record all of these teachings. So if you're just jumping in and uh, you want to go back, uh, you can. We have a little podcast. It's Refuge Young Adults, and you can search that in the podcast app, and it'll come up, and it's everything that we've done over the past, uh, I don't know, long time. And then um, we're going to be starting a new one. There's these things that uh, Zach and I do. It's called lightning rounds. And uh, thanks, Mom. Uh, no. Uh, so we do, you guys get to ask us questions over Instagram, and then we answer them on the podcast. So it's a lot of fun, and it's going to have its own. So it's going to be its own thing. So what you'll do is search lightning rounds in podcast app if you want to listen. Hey, if you don't, no big deal, uh, but it would really validate our whole entire life if you would, you know, go there and listen. So that'll be up soon. And um, as far as announcements go, I don't, that's all I remember at this point. All right. So we're going to be in First Corinthians chapter 8. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful, God, tonight that as we, um, as we just come in with all this stuff of the week and the day, it's been a, a, a hectic week. Uh, for, for us personally, as well as just our country. Lord, we're so thankful, God, that when we come into your presence, all of that kind of, it just fades away. We're reminded, God, that you're in control. We're reminded, God, that you still live. And so, Lord, because you live, we too shall live, your word tells us. And so, God, we pray that you would continue to write eternity into our heart. God, that we would set our eyes towards um, just a life lived for you, knowing that eternity is coming, Lord, in your presence forever. And Lord, we're thankful, God, that you've given us your word to help us to navigate our life and how to live a Christian life and live a holy life and a righteous life in an increasingly dark uh, world. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit um, through your word, God, that you would, um, by your spirit, begin to soften our hearts to hear from you, that you quicken our minds and our soul to hear from you tonight. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, remember the first half of the book of 1 Corinthians, it's, it was corrective. 
So Paul was correcting a lot of different issues that was going on in this church in Corinth. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who pastored this church in Corinth for some time, and then he moved on. You know, God moved him to a new place. He got word of some things that were happening in the church, along with uh, the good that was going on, that people were getting saved, and many were coming to, uh, coming to Christ and getting saved in that way. There was a lot of bad that was going on, some things that needed to be corrected. And so Paul takes the first six chapters to... Uh, address some of these issues with the intention of helping them to understand that sin will hinder your effectiveness for the gospel. Sin will hinder the light of the gospel going forth. And so as a church that was going to be used by God mightily in that city, there needed to be some things that were corrected. There was sin that was creeping in. There was division. There was dissension. We talked about a lot of those things in the past. Um, and so we come to Chapter 7, where Paul begins to address the questions that they asked him. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me. He begins to answer their questions. We don't have the letter that they, they sent him, but we do have his responses. So it's kind of like Jeopardy in that way. Um, so they're, he's going to answer... Yeah, buddy. You're going to hear babies tonight. And God bless them. There's babies in there. There's babies everywhere. Hey, just getting you ready for all of that stuff. So um, now concerning the things which you wrote to me, that, this is Paul answering those questions. We don't have the questions, but we can guess as to what they were. The first one was uh, addressing relationships. We're, we're, they're asking, now that we're saved, and now that we've come out of this, uh, this sex-crazed culture that we live in, how do we date? How do we be single? Uh, is it wrong to get married? Is it wrong to be single? Like, what should we do? If we're married to someone who's not saved, should we divorce them and leave? And Paul gives instruction into those things. We talk about how marriage is not disposable. Paul says in, in the end of this chapter, he tells them that if you can, if your, your spouse is willing to stay, if they're unsaved and they're willing to stay with you, then stay. He says, who knows how God might use you to win your spouse to the Lord. Now, this is not a proof text for missionary dating where you're like, they're not walking with God, but I'm going to win them to Christ. It's like the worst possible idea you could ever have. But this is talking about people who are already married. So we don't want to go backwards. We want to go forwards into what we're talking about tonight. And that is food. How many of you love food? Now, I know that you can't probably tell from the looks of me but I like food. It's one of my favorite things. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, now concerning things offered to idols. Uh, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So the question is, should we eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? Now you may be thinking, how in the world is this relevant to us today? Like, we don't go through a restaurant or through a drive-thru. We haven't been going to restaurants for a while now. But you don't ask. It's not one of the questions uh, we ask, is this vegan? Uh, do you have a vegan option? Do you have a gluten-free option? We don't ask, do you have an idol-free option? We're like, is any of this been sacrificed to an idol on this menu? Um, because I'm going to stay away from that. No, there's other questions that we ask. Um, even I've traveled a little bit into other parts of the world. And this is not necessarily a practice all over the world anymore. 
Some of these like rural places way out in the jungles, they're not still sacrificing meat to idols. So how is this even going to be relevant to us here in Southern California? Or even those who have traveled, you've maybe traveled a little bit and you've noticed that you just eat what's in front of you. This isn't necessarily a question that comes up too often. But there are three principles that the Apostle Paul is going to give us that do apply and are relevant to the way in which we relate to God and each other. The truth is, I don't know if you know this, but we struggle as Christians. We struggle walking with God in a secular world. Things aren't always black and white, are they? And this is why the Bible gives us wisdom literature. It has wisdom that's available to us in order to navigate the gray of the Christian life. We have the Ten Commandments, like thou shalt not. And you're like, yes, I understand. I shouldn't murder. Like, that's a good one. You know, if you ever go to like a small group, community group, and someone's asking for prayer requests, and they're like, I just am struggling. Like, should I murder my boss? And they're like, oh, let's see what scripture says. No, that's a clear no. Like, you shouldn't do that. But there are other things that we have to navigate. Like, if someone's doing that, let's talk afterwards. If you're contemplating harming someone. But, but there are other things that we have to deal with. Like if you do have a boss that's breathing down your neck and you're having a hard time and there's conflict at work, like how do we navigate through that as a Christian? How do we deal with that? The Bible gives us wisdom literature. There are different books of the Bible in which we spent a whole long time in the book of Proverbs looking at some of those things, how to make wise choices and things like that through the book of Proverbs. Now, issues that we need to work out through those uh, that have very strong opinions on things that aren't scripturally forbidden, but they feel it should. That this is the issue that is going on. As, as they're struggling as Christians in a secular world, issues are coming up that are not scripturally forbidden. Like it wasn't forbidden in scripture as, as Gentiles coming into this new relationship with Jesus Christ, that they were not to eat these, these different meals that were being sacrificed to idols. A lot of times what would happen is these slaughterhouses would have restaurants in front of them and they would have a temple attached to it. And so before the meat would come out to serve or, or to be bought, they would pray over it or sacrifice it to the idol first and then they would sell it on the market, which it would a lot of times be cheaper because there were cuts that were a, a less desirable. They give it the, the more desirable stuff to the priests, to the idol, and then they would sell the scraps. And so it was a lot cheaper. So if you're, if you're working on a budget, like here's a great deal. I mean, anyone know what it's like working on a budget? Del Taco dollar menu. You know, you're just loving life. You can eat like a king for 375 or whatever you're just whoo no okay just me then all right <laughs> judge Yvonne holier than thou out there like the dollar menu's been a great thing moving on but these things that are not necessarily scriptural like they're forbidden by scripture but people have these strong opinions that they should be and so it causes friction in the body of Christ which has the potential for division and fracture which I'm sure you've all seen or been a part of, where there's this really hard-nosed uh, preaching of something that's doctrine, but it's actually not doctrine. And we're going to talk about what that is. And so in our text, we have two teams. Team one says, we used to worship in those temples with those idols. We were involved in pagan practices. So there's no way a Christian should be eating that. Like there's no way. We have no business being in that place. We don't want anything to do with that stuff. Team two, however, says this meat that was sacrificed to an idol of whatever God that doesn't even exist 
So I'm hungry, this meat is super cheap, I'm eating it, doesn't matter. And that was the mentality, like why would we not? This God that they're sacrificing, we know the one true God. It doesn't exist, so it doesn't matter. On the other hand, you have people growing up, living in this religion, sacrificing and being a part of these temple like rituals, and they're like, this is disgusting. And to even be a part of that is something that we don't want anything to deal with. And anyone who does, they can't be a Christian. Now, it doesn't say that. In scripture, you can see where the tension would come. And so they write to Paul and say, help us. Like, we don't know what to do. This is causing a lot of tension within our church. So the first principle is found in verse 4. And that is, number one, doctrine matters. Look what it says. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, meaning they've been given that title, but they're not really, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom all things, and we are for him. And our, Lord, our one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So the first principle that Paul gives us is, number one, doctrine matters. It matters. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The idea here is the body of teaching. Doctrine means what's being taught or what's being preached. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but you're being preached at a gospel or a message all the time. You're being preached to. And hopefully they're gaining, they, what they want is to gain your following. They want you to believe what's being taught to you. So, so this idea of doctrine is the, the whole or the teaching of God's word, the doctrine of it, it matters. Because what it teaches us is it teaches us about God. I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago, we held up like the section in which the Bible talks about dating and relationships. And it's like that much. It really doesn't talk about it that much. And why is that? Because it's not the main storyline of scripture. Therefore, it's not the main storyline of our life. The, the Bible teaches us who God is. And so the idea here is that it's a, a doctrine matters for us. What the Bible teaches us about God is very important. We need to take our cues from what scripture says. Because what we understand of God comes by revelation, not by imagination. Meaning that what you think you want God to be, it does not matter because that, it doesn't matter. It's what God reveals to us or unveils to us. The book of Revelation is a word, that word revelation is the word unveiling, meaning to reveal who Jesus is. So when we read the book of Revelation, it's the unveiling of God's plan. It's the unveiling of who Jesus truly is. It's, it's a glorious time in which we just get this view of Jesus in glory in his kingdom, not just as a baby or a carpenter, but as God himself standing in the very place in which God deserves to be worshipped, where we get to be with him, right? It's, it's an incredible picture. It's an unveiling of who Jesus is. So when the Bible reveals to us on, on what God or who God is and how God feels and how God works, that for us is doctrine, and we stand on that, not on my imagination of what God is or, or whatever. Because this is where things get weird, right? How many of you have ever been to a weird time 
at a weird church. We were like, this is weird. I don't know why. Guess what? If it feels weird, it is weird, right? That's the Holy Spirit. Like, this is weird. And you're like, eh, it's kind of weird. It's weird. Like, and if you're feeling that tonight, I'm sorry, but it's probably just me. But the idea of doctrine is that God is revealing to us who he is. Scripture is revealing of the person and the nature of God. And what verse 4 tells us about doctrine is that, number one, an idol is nothing. An idol is nothing. And number two, there is one God. This is what the Bible teaches. And this is important for us to hang our hat on and understand. There is one true God. And that is it. There is one true God. There are many altars in this world to many false gods. There is worship happening to many false gods. There, there is devotion to many false gods. And guess what? None of it exists. The only one who's behind it is Satan himself. Because Satan himself does not care whether or not he's identified as this God or that God or whatever God. He doesn't care if his name's made great. It's about getting you to not worship God himself. Do you know the opposite of God worship is not Satan worship, it's self-worship. Because we begin to worship ourselves, just as the devil did in the beginning of time, where he said, I will be like the most high God and I will be worshiped. Men has, have adopted that type of worship. And that's the scheme of the devil. He just feeds you the lie that he himself came up with, his imagination. And so when the Bible talks about who God is, this is where we find our footing and what we believe, not just our imagination. To give you an example, people are starting to believe that there's no such thing as hell, which is interesting, and that God's not going to send, like, no one goes to hell. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus taught more on hell than he taught on heaven, with the purpose of, of people not going there. And God doesn't send people to hell. I don't know if you know this. I've, someone said this the other day, and it, like, rocked my world. Oh, <laughs> sorry. But this is cool. God does not send people to hell. Your sin sends you to hell. Christ died to forgive your sins so that you would never have to go there. And so the idea that like God's not going to judge sin is a sad, sad thought. To think of all the things and all the injustices that have happened in this world, for them to go unjudged, God would be unholy and unrighteous and unfair. Therefore, God will judge sin. And we know that because it says it in the Bible. It says in the Bible, hell is a real place that God has done everything for humanity so they don't have to go there. He's done everything. He's provided salvation so that no one would ever have to go there. Scripture is revealing the person and the nature of God. An idol is nothing. There is one God. This is what it reveals to us. Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18, it says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. David writes this psalm and he's saying that as he looks at the nations and they're creating these idols and they put ears on them. Why? Because they have ears. They put eyes on them. Why? Because they have eyes. They're making an image of themselves. They're, they're creating something that looks like them. It's self-worship. 
And it's, this, it's similar to the nation of Israel. Man is, is the one who makes it by his own imagination. Similar to the nation of Israel and the sin of the golden calf. If you remember, they're coming out of Egypt. There they are. They're at the bottom of Mount Zion. Moses is on the mountain. The cloud has consumed it. They're like, Moses is dead. <laughs> like he's left us. We've been waiting down here for who knows how long. They go to Aaron. They say, make us a God that we may worship. And so he has all the people throw their gold into this, this melting pot. They form in this golden laven, this thing. They make a golden calf and they say, Aaron, and this is the exact verbiage. Aaron says this, behold, the God who has brought you out of Egypt. So he attributes all of the power, all of the miracles, all, all of those things to this image. What's happening there and what's plagued Israel throughout its history, if you go to the, the history of Israel in Jeroboam's time and where he is told by God that the nation's going to split, you'll have 10, 10 tribes and the two will be here and all you can go back and read it. But here's what happened. Jeroboam sets up two places where they could worship. You don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to the house of the Lord. Here's two places where you can worship. And inside were two golden calves. And he said, behold, your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Same words. Same words. It's haunting. It haunted their lives. Idolatry, although it may not be something where we set up or we're carving images and we're things like that, but we can form in ourselves and from ourselves gods in our own imagination. Isaiah 44, he says, he cuts down cedars, he selects the cypress and the oak, he plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. Then he uses part of the wood to make fire with it. He warms himself and bakes his bread. Then yes, it's true. He takes the rest of it and makes himself a God of worship. He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm. He says, ah, the fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and makes his God a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says, you are my God. And this is what the Bible says, such stupidity and ignorance. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Just because it has ears doesn't mean it can hear. Just because it has a mouth doesn't mean it can speak. Although we do not shape idols out of wood with our hands, it doesn't mean that we don't shape a God out of our imagination. And this is why doctrine matters. We know what God is like, not by what we think, but, why, but what has been revealed to us and told to us in his word. And Paul says here, in what we know, uh, this is what we know, there is one God, and what this meat is because of sacrifice, it, who it's sacrificed to, it's not real. And so we don't have to worry about that. Know that there's one God. He's helping them to understand. But look what verse five and six says. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, uh, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him. What does doctrine tell us? First of all, that there is one true God. It tells us what he is like. Third, that we exist to be in relationship with him. That's what verse six teaches us. We are for him. The Bible tells us that God created us in the beginning, that we might have fellowship and relationship with him. When Jesus called his disciples to him, it says that they might be with him. This is how we relate to God. This is what God tells us. There's one God. He loves us. He, he tells us what he's like and that we exist on this planet 
for relationship with him. But not only does it tell us that, but the end of verse six says, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom we are all things and through whom we live. The last thing that this doctrine tells us is that in him we have life. And the Bible tells us we have life more abundantly. That in Christ is life. And if you're trying to find it anywhere else, it may satisfy for a moment, it may be fun for a moment, but it will not satisfy in the way that Christ satisfies. It's just simply that. We exist to be with him in relationship with him. Christ died to bring us back into right relationship with him. The Holy Spirit cries out and calls to us and draws us to him because that is what God desires and that's why we exist on this planet is to know him and to be with him. And he says, in that, as you come to me, I will give you life and that more abundantly. And that is the mission and the goal of God. That's why God It's so important to understand, to know what the Bible says about God. And what this tells us is that Jesus is not a supplement to my life. He's not like a vitamin C shot that you get or or like a ginger shot. And you're like, woo, now I feel amazing. I got a little Jesus in me and everything else is great. This is not a supplement or a vitamin to your life. This is life. Because the church is a Christocentric. You are Christocentric. You are designed to be centered on Christ. That he is our foundation and everything else flows from that. But we have it backwards. And this is why it's important. Doctrine matters. What the Bible says about God is who God is. And if anyone tells you something different, they're lying. That's why it's important for us to know what the Bible says. It's important for us to know who Jesus is. What determines then, verse 8, he says, but food does not commend us to God. If Christ is the one who gives us life, then what determines our relationship with God? Look what he says about food. Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. And everyone said, hallelujah. Hallelujah. What determines my relationship with God? Our relationship with God is not determined by what you eat or don't eat. Which means we can eat whatever we want. That's what Jesus said to Peter. There Peter is on the top of the roof and the sheet comes out of heaven and he says, it's got creepy things and animals. He's like, I don't eat that stuff. And Jesus says, oh yes you do. You can. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. All things are yours. He's like, well I'm a good little Jewish boy. I don't eat that stuff. Three times this same vision happened to him. Ultimately, God was revealing something else in his heart, that the gospel was going to go to all, that the the law was breaking. Jesus broke down the barriers of the law. The gospel was going to go out unto all. But Jesus actually spoke to this very thing about food. Listen to this. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. It says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person, that are which defile him. And when he had entered the house, and left the people his disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them then are you also without understanding do you not see that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled thus he declares all food clean and he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him from within out of the heart a man comes evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality evil 
evil, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Man is not a sinner because of what he eats or what he takes in. Man is a sinner because he's born into sin. And what you see in this world is man's heart being displayed all over your screen. It is the heart of man that is defiled by sin. And the only cure is Jesus Christ. It is nothing that they take into their body through the outside, whether it's food or drink. It is purely an inward work that has to take place by the work of the Holy Spirit. It it can't be done. It cannot be fixed by anything that we do on the outside. It has to be a renewal from the inward man. That is what Jesus is saying. It doesn't matter what they eat. And he's talking about they were washing their hands and all this stuff. And the Pharisees are like, how come your disciples don't wash their hands? It's good to wash your hands. If this year has not taught us anything, we should wash our hands. Like, way to go. You know, wash them. But he says, that's not what makes you a sinner. Touching dirt does not make you dirty. It's already in there. And this is what drove the apostle Paul from Saul to Paul. This is what drove him crazy. When he said that he kept the law perfectly as a man, the law that drove him nuts was was this one in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. All the rest are like outward things. Like, okay, I'm not going to murder. Check. Did that. Like, I'm not going to bear false witness. Cool. When it comes to coveting, that's something that happens in the heart. You can't like reform that through some kind of social work. That's something that only God can do in the heart. And it drove the apostle Paul crazy. Well, when he was Saul, it drove him to this place of humility. I can't change myself. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. So what is it that determines our relationship with God then? Number one, it's faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to his word. Nicodemus came to Jesus with a similar question. What, he said, what determines my relationship with God? And Jesus said, you must be born again. You got to have faith, man. You got to be born again. That's it. That determines your relationship with God. That happens by faith in Jesus Christ. So the second principle is this. Number one is doctrine matters. Number two, the second principle is that our conscience can become cloudy. Our conscience can become cloudy. Verse seven, it says, however, there's not even ever, hold on. I'm getting really excited. It's getting really warm in here. Anyone else warm? Getting warm? You guys want to just crack? No, you'll freeze then if that door is open. Just everyone stop breathing, okay? Here we go. Verse (laughs) 7. However, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Our conscience can become cloudy. There were those whose conscience was affected by the culture that they lived in. Team one's like, it's no big deal. Like, let's eat whatever we want. Like, down with the weak. And we're strong and so whatever. We're going to eat what we want. Team two is like, man, we're struggling with it. It's hard for me. I don't know. It's probably not this. You guys haven't experienced this. But my, uh, with tattoos, for instance. My parents, when I came, I have one little tattoo and it's my wife's, like the big, it's an L for my wife, Lauren, because I lost my wedding ring. And so I got, I got it tattooed on. I hopefully don't lose my finger, but this is kind of helping me not to do that. Okay. And I can't, my brother is covered in tattoos, like his back his whatever. He's always got tattoos and it's like, oh, sweet little Matt. Okay. I walk in the house with 
it's a wedding thing. Like it's for my wife who I love, okay? I gave my parents four grandchildren and my mom was absolutely disgusted by the fact that I got a tattoo. Because when she grew up, only sailors get tattoos. <laughs> Just like, how could you be a Christian and have a tattoo? That was her whole mentality. And I'm like, I don't understand why it's different for me um, and not my brother, but that's a whole nother family issue that we're working through. <laughs> Favoritism and things like that. But you see like these kinds of things throughout culture and, and the older generation always looks at the younger generation and just like these kids the way they dress, the way they look, you know, how stupid their hair is, all that stuff, right? And you're like, this is cool. And then someday we're going to be on that side. I'm on that side right now where I look around at kids at, at the mall and I'm like, good night. <laughs> like, girl, those pants are my size. Like you're wearing my size pants. Those are forties, girl. Like those are anyway, like, why are they so big? I'm getting on a tangent here. We're going to get back to this. The conscience is an eternal, internal compass given to us by God to help us determine right and wrong. But it can get clouded by the culture that we live in. Um, their conscience had become weakened by the culture. Think about it, that, that they had grown up in this and now they're putting food in front of them that have been sacrificed to an idol or that a worship service, worshiping God together and then everyone goes out to eat and some people go into the, like, the temple restaurant and they're eating there and they're like, how can you go from this to that? Like, I, it is just not computing. And they're like, these, you can see how it fraction off and create little sects of, of Christianity that were not good. It would divide where God, God has called us to unity. And so the Bible talks about the fact that one day the conscience of men will be seared with like a, a hot iron, meaning that it will be uh, cauterized, meaning that they will no longer be sensitive to uh, right and wrong. Like the, it's just, it's done. But this happens in our own life. It, it won't bother them anymore. I don't know about you, but um, there are times where when I first like came to Christ and I would do something that I always did and I was like, oh. Lord, I am so sorry. And there was this repentance and this turning back to the Lord. And like over time, I'd be like, oh, I failed again. Like, God, I'm sorry. And then I go back, like, you know what I'm talking about. And then you do it again. And you're like, you know what? It's not a big deal. And then you're like fully in it. And you're here wearing a badge at church. And you're like welcoming people in. You're like, yeah, you would not believe what I just did. But welcome to church. You know what I mean? Suddenly you just don't care anymore. And that can happen to our conscience. We can become cloudy in that because of the onslaught of culture. It's weakening our conscience and it's influencing us in the wrong way. So how do we relate to one another on this then? Well, verse one, going back. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We must, as a church, as a fellowship, Remember that fellowship with one another is more important than freedom. Fellowship with one another is more important than freedom. Personal freedom is incredibly important to us. All right? As American citizens, we love freedom. It's what makes our country great. The fact that you can choose any school that you want to go to, you can go and you can do the things that you do, you can vote for who you want to vote for. These are the things, you can say whatever you want to say, even if it's good or bad for the time being, but you, you can do that kind of stuff, right? We have freedom in this country, that you're innocent until proven guilty. Like, that's a good thing. And hopefully you're not on that side of the law where they're trying to figure that out. 
Personal freedom is incredibly important to us. But my freedom always needs to take a back seat to you walking with Jesus. My freedom always has to take a backseat, meaning my liberty and what I feel like I can do and what I have freedom in Christ to do, it always takes a backseat to hopefully you walking with Jesus more, being drawn closer to Jesus more. And that is the attitude that Paul is helping us to adopt. Knowledge puffs up, he says. It has the tendency tendency to self-exalt. However, the contrast is love always builds the other up. And so we are bound not to the law of freedom, although we've been free and set free in Christ, we are now bound to the law of love for one another. Paul is saying the principle here is, is the focus is no longer about me. The focus is upon us as the body of Christ. There's an interesting story as the nation of Israel is coming across the wilderness that women and children were with them. They went, they followed at the speed of the cloud or the pillar of fire by night. That's the speed that they went. However far it went or whatever. Guess what? This is cool. God always went the speed of the women and the children. They were never just dragging on like, we can't catch up. We're not going to make it. God always went at the speed of the weakest person to keep up. And so too, we adopt that mentality. We adopt the fact that freedom, although important and a blessing, always has to take a back seat to you and I walking with Jesus more closely. And that is the law of love. And this is like the one command that he gives in verse nine. He says, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Beware means to be on alert, be on the lookout. What does he want us to be on the lookout for? We want to build up, not trip up. That is the lookout. Like we want to build each other up, not trip each other up. Is our freedom helping others to grow in the Lord or is it becoming a stumbling block for them to trip up on? In verses 11 and 12, Paul says, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. That's heavy right there. That this affects the body of Christ. And Jesus takes it very, very seriously. Paul says those of you who have the freedom to eat the meat that, that's been sacrificed to the idol, but also you sit in the restaurant. You're, you're there doing that. That's not sin. You have that freedom to do that. That's not condemned by God. What is condemned by God is if your freedom emboldens your brother to go back into the temple and potentially send them back into idolatry, then this becomes sin and sin against Christ. Jesus says, you're not just sinning against them. It's affecting the body of Jesus Christ. And he takes it very seriously. And Christ takes it personally because it's his body, it's his bride, and so we need to treat it as such, Right? And this is a crazy statement. And we're going to end right here. You guys are melting. We're almost done. Are you ready? You're almost there. Don't fall asleep just yet. You know what? If you want to, go ahead. I'm not going to get mad. What a great place to fall asleep in church. Verse 13 says, therefore, right? In light of everything that's been said, in light of everything that Paul has just discussed with us, that we do have freedom, but it needs to always take a backseat to someone else's, uh, to, to love them and to encourage them and to promote them towards Jesus Christ, to build them up. Paul says this, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
Paul says, if, if doing that would cause them to stumble, then I will never do it again. And I will gladly lay down my freedom for someone else. Why would, why would someone do this? But Paul, in the light of this reality, says your fellowship and relationship with Jesus must take priority over my freedoms. Paul had freedom but was willing to lay it down for others. Why? Because that is what he saw modeled in Jesus Christ. That's what he saw in Jesus. Jesus is always the model for our life. That's always what we look to. When we talk about freedom and liberty and loving others, like what is the picture of it? We go to the cross, we see Jesus who laid his life down for those not only who loved him, but those who cursed him, despised him, and hated him. He died for their sins as well. Mark 6, verse 30, um, tells the story of something that I forgot to write. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Mark 6, verse 30. It says, they were going on a little retreat. There was a time in which Jesus had sent out his disciples um, uh, they went out and did miracles and things were happening. And so they were doing a lot of ministry. They were coming back and Jesus says, like, let's go on a little trip. Like, we're going to get away together. We're just going to debrief, talk about what, God, what, you know, I did through you or whatever, what, what the Lord has done through that time of ministry. We're going to just get away, rest. I mean, things have been so crazy. He was going on a little vacation and a getaway. And it says that he saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion and he, for, he just like threw those plans aside and he began to minister. And what happens after that is that they see one of the greatest miracles that's ever taken place. And that is the feeding of the 5,000. It happens right at that moment where Jesus stops, although he needed to rest, his disciples needed to rest. They said, we're going to forego our freedoms for a moment and our needs and our desires so that these people can see the glory of God. Jesus is always the picture Listen, if you're like hardcore on liberty, then you're missing the other side of it. Like I have liberty. Yes, you do. And Jesus says you have the liberty to lay it down as well for someone else who needs to know Jesus Christ. This is what it is to walk with Jesus. It is. We sign up for like a lifetime of self-sacrifice and it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. It means that we are, a lot of times, we're inconvenienced. How many of you hate to be inconvenienced? Like, yeah, I'm super, I don't like to be inconvenienced. My car was in the shop this week, and I have no car. Like, I had no car. It was the most inconvenient thing ever, where I had to ask someone for a ride. Like, one of our high school kids, I'm like, hey, are you going home right now? Like, can I get a ride? I know I'm 35 years old. <laughs> but I don't want to take the bus. Like, and this kid gave me a ride home. It's really sweet of him. But anyway, <laughs> there are often times where we are called upon by the Lord to lay down freedom. And listen, the only way that we're going to experience like true fellowship with one another is you have to give up your freedom in order to gain that. Like those, those people that are like, I'm just looking for a community and I'm starving for it. Guess what? That means you have to let go of your plans and your desires and show up at the community group no matter what and be consistent in order to find it. If you're like, man, I have freedom. I can do whatever I want. You're never going to find fellowship like you're wanting. In order to have it, your freedom tank has to come way down to find fellowship. Because in order to have fellowship, it takes self-sacrifice and for the betterment of other people. 
It's built into this system of Christianity. It's built into our walk with Jesus that in order to have life in that more abundantly, Jesus says, watch what happens when you just let go of your freedom and just let me work and to bless others, you're gonna be so joyful. That's where this life and that more abundantly comes from. It's pretty cool, but it is, it's a paradox. It's upside down. It's not the way we think it's gonna happen, but it is the path in which God has called us to. But also the cross of Christ always points us to the fact that Jesus laid down his life for us so that we may have fellowship with God, the ultimate display of freedom, um, fellowship over freedom. So let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful, God, for your word and for what it teaches us about you. And Lord, we're thankful that, God, you um, laid down your life for us that we might have fellowship with you. And so, Lord, uh, may we take that into our own life to adopt your way as our own, to look for ways in which we can, we can serve one another and bless one another. And God, we're just so thankful, Lord, that you call us to a life of self-sacrifice. And it's a blessing, Lord. Although it's difficult, it totally goes against the grain of everything in our heart. Lord, we're thankful that through that, you, you are allowing just um, those rough areas of our heart to kind of melt away and to change. And so, Lord, we're thankful that you allow this process to happen, to sanctify us and to make us more like you. And so, Jesus, we, we pray that you'd bless uh, the rest of this evening as we close in worship, as we spend time in fellowship with one another. Jesus, would you uh, meet us in this place tonight and uh, begin to work in our heart through your spirit. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.